Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Persuasion by the Pint. I'm Jonathan Taylor, along with Sean McCool. All right, Sean, today we're going to get into some fun stuff. We're going to be talking behavioral science marketing with a guest coming up here in the next 10 minutes or so. Yeah, so Um, behavioral science. So we had to bring a guest in because it's a little over (laughs) our pay grade. Yes, exactly. We're juvenile behavioral science majors probably, but we need someone with a little more... uh, need an adult in the room. (laughs) So Nancy will be joining us to kind of keep us on track, I guess. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. We haven't met Nancy yet. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we've got her. She'll be joining us shortly. We weren't sure that uh, she would have a beverage. So we decided to go ahead and jump into our beverage review beforehand. And uh, Sean, I guess we'll start with you. What do you have on today's show? Well, today I have, you're going to love this one. So I'm going to go ahead and add it to the stream for those of you on the YouTubes. We have the Pastry Archie Unicorn Farts After Dark. Yes, for those of you listening, that is a real brand of a beer uh, from from our friends over at Duclaw Brewing Company. 8.5% ABV. 39 IBUs. It says glitter shines brighter in the dark. Giddy up for this French toast flavor frenzy complete with alluring chocolate and spiced cinnamon. A beautiful dark take on the original Unicorn's Fart collaboration between Ducal Brewing and Diablo Donuts. Now brewed as a dessert stout with chocolatey cinnamon cereal and gold edible glitter. Wow. And if you want to hear what a unicorn fart sounds like. <laughs> it's, I'm glad we did these before she came on. She'd probably be very. Uh, she'd be out the door. Already. She would be appalled at our discussion. At our juvenile beer talk. <laughs> <laughs> Never going to find that. She might find them amusing. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious to see if there's actually glitter or not. So. <laughs> In the glass, you're looking for glitter in the glass. Yeah, I gotta tell you, man, I don't know how you find where did you find this? These are all at HEB. Okay, I don't even have to go to like Total Wine or anything. I need to make HEB has has these. I'm too lazy to go, I just go down the street here. Um, there's definitely there's definitely glitter in this. It's hard to see. Really? Um, wow. But there's definitely some glitter. If I hold it up under the the light, I can I can see the glitter, which really is exciting. Was that eight point five? Eight point five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I've got a uh, from Southern Tier. Let's see here, I've got a frosted sugar cookie. Um, let's see oh, here. Sounds good too. Yeah, frosted sugar cookie, imperial ale, um, perfect for the holidays. Gather around the fire with all your closest friends and cozy up with this delicious spectacle of pure sweetness that is sure to sprinkle your wintry days with joy. Yes, <laughs> I love it. We're in the we are in the spirit of the season now. You won't believe it's beer. And not a, uh, you won't believe it's beer and not a tin of ice confections. Wow. So I don't, That's I don't a know. Bold it's, statement right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, are you a, uh, I'm not much of a sugar cookie guy, but are you? Oh yeah. I love sugar cookie. Okay. Yeah. I, don't I love cookies. Yeah, I general. do too, but I've just never been, I mean, I'll eat one if they're on the tray, but yeah, it's not sure. like a one that I seek out, but yeah. I'd be interested to see what this tastes like. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's figure it out. You got yours poured. I am ready to go. Look at that. It's All right. Awesome. Not much of a head on this one. Just really, no, just, uh, really flat. Just good ale. All right. All right. So cheers. Cheers. Ooh! Wow. That is very sweet. Well, I'm thankful it doesn't taste like a fart. <laughs> So that's good. It's a good start. Glad you got that out before she joined us. And she entered the green room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm keeping an eye on it. Um, Let's so see. Chocolate cinnamon crunch breakfast out with gold glitter. I'm trying to see if I'm getting the 
not getting a lot of chocolate, a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not getting what I expected. It's good, but I'm not getting quite what I expected from, from the label. Right. Um, so, Hmm. But it's very drinkable as a stout, as an Imperial stout goes. Drinkable so, doesn't sound promising. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's good. It's just like I said, I was expecting a little more chocolate mm-hmm. and cinnamon, and I'm not getting as much chocolate and cinnamon in this as I thought. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give it, um, I'm going to give it a 3.5 out of five pints on our scale here. Very good. So yeah, three point five. Solid. Just, you know, average, middle of the road. Average score. Great marketing though. I love the can. Love love the can. <laughs> um, so, all right. Comments from the uh, on the Oso. What is what is that? Oso. Yeah, well, that's just my uh, Oso McCool. Oh, I get, okay. Man, I'm not saying. <laughs> Oso McCool. Yeah, I'm trying it out. Trying it out for marketing purposes. I like purposes. that. I like that. All right, I'm going to give my score an Oso 4.6. Oh, wow. That's good. pretty strong. It's good. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good I for like sugar it. cookie beer. I like yeah. that. Yeah, it's not quite what I expected. So I'm going with an Oso 4.6. All right. Sounds good. Well, I see our guest is in the green room. Yes. Nancy is joining us. She is, um, let me pull up her bio here because I have to give a wonderful introduction. And uh, should I say, um, let's see, should we pull her up while I'm doing the introduction to make sure I pronounce her? Yeah, just make sure you, you, the crowd knows she's coming. <laughs> All right, we have Nancy. I'm going to say uh, Harhut. It, I could be. It could be Harhut. Oh, she gave you this sort of. That's kind of right Harhut hand signal. Harhut. Harhut. Uh, She says her, we're going to be talking about her book, Using Behavioral Science in Marketing, How to Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses. Uh, Getting people to take action is what Nancy is all about. Her specialty is a blend of best of breed creative with behavioral science to prompt response. She and her teams have won over 200 international and national awards for marketing effectiveness. Along the way, she's helped generate $68 million in incremental revenue for uh, Nationwide, uh, establish seven controls for GM Card, and create one of H&R Block's most successful campaigns. Uh, she's recognized for her work in B2C, B2B, nonprofit, and she's been named one of the 10 most fascinating people in B2B marketing. Uh, wow. So, wow, this is going to be... How did you get her on this show? just Man, amazing i know i'm telling you i know where to let's go let's bring her on with a big round of applause so uh welcome to the show nancy thank you very much happy to be here a big round of applause big round of applause they're all standing by the way <laughs> in case you Love it. see them so yeah, thanks for the show. Uh, yeah yeah nancy welcome to the show thanks for joining us looking well, forward to talking about your book yeah so t- I forgot to mention uh, in our emails back and forth, um, and I don't know if you've noticed, but you joining, Sean and I have a little beverage uh, that we rate prior to, and a lot of our listeners, some listeners love it, some of our listeners hate it, they call, they call us juveniles, but that's okay. Um, that's why we've got someone sophisticated like yourself to offset our juvenile behavior. So uh, There you go. <laughs> so you are the adult in the room today, Nancy. That's right, just, exactly. Just so you know. That's right. So, so I, I know you guys do the beer thing, I, uh, but I also know that some of your guests don't indulge. Uh, <laughs> someone recently was drinking a water, and I heard you very dejectedly say to each other, oh, he's got a water. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's only uh, 3.30 for me here, and I have a little bit of work after this, so I'm sipping my tea for now. But there's a beverage in my future. Don't worry. All right. What's hey. your go-to beverage yep. once you're you know done with work? This is going to be disappointing to you guys, but I, I'm a rum and diet girl. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Rum and what? Rum and diet Coke, basically. Oh, rum and diet Coke. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Rum and diet. You know, holidays I like, I don't drink a lot of rum, but around the holidays, I like a little rum and eggnog. So that's a little, uh, kind of go-to. There is a beer, though. Um, There's one called Southern Tier Creme Brulee that's really quite good. One of my colleagues described it as dessert in a glass, and I have to say it was quite good. I think uh, I've had that one. Yes. uh, We actually reviewed that one. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's just a few weeks ago. So I'm having a Southern Tier today, but it is a 
frosted uh, sugar cookie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the uh, the creme brulee season passed. Sadly, yeah. Uh, I went to pick one up, and they're like, "Yeah, you're a little late." Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So who knew there was a creme brulee season? <laughs> I know. Well, that's what I said. And if there were a creme brulee season, you thought maybe it'd be around the holidays, you know, yeah. but had you thought that way, like I did, you would have been wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like we're all clear on when pumpkin spice season is, but yes. <laughs> these other ones we're not quite so sure about. So, so yeah. All right, well, Nancy, uh, correct me how, how I, so I said, is it Narhut? I mean, Harhut? Harhut. Harhut. Yes. Harhut. Okay. Very good. Very, Very good. Simple. I nailed it the Just second like it time. You did nail it the second time. And I, it, I've had Harhut, but uh, it really is Harhut. So yeah, yeah. Pretty simple. Well, we're well, excited to uh, talk about your book, um, you know, just to give our listeners a little background. And we'll be uh, mentioning where to find it. Obviously, you find it on Amazon using the title again, Using Behavioral Science and Marketing. Uh, this book reveals how to trigger automatic action by applying behavioral science principles in marketing strategy and creative execution. So, uh, before we get into it, why don't you share with Sean and I a little bit about your background, and then we'll uh, we'll get into the book. Uh, sure, yeah. So, you know, I, I came up on the copywriting side, working in different agencies, and about uh, five and a half years ago, I co-founded HBT Marketing, which is a boutique agency. The HBT stands for Human Behavior Triggers, and what we do is we take marketing best practices and... Um, we blend those with behavioral science in order to increase the likelihood that uh, people will engage with and respond to our clients' uh, marketing messages. And when I talk about behavioral science, what I'm really talking about is the study of why people do what they do, how they make decisions. And what behavioral scientists have found is, despite the fact that we as marketers think that uh, people make these well thought out, well considered decisions, you know, if we just get the right message to the right person at the right time, we'll get the right response. It turns out that very often, people are relying on decision-making shortcuts. It's a, it's a way that uh, they conserve mental energy. The human brain has actually evolved to conserve mental energy. And as a result, humans have developed these hardwired behaviors. We cruise along through life on autopilot. We encounter a certain situation, default to a hardwired behavior, giving it little to no thought. And um, you know, a marketer might hear that and think, oh my gosh, I'm doomed. But really it's good news for marketers because if we know that people rely on decision-making shortcuts, what we want to do is kind of serve up the right prompts or triggers in our marketing executions to uh, to get them to do what we want them to do. And uh, so that's what we do at HBT Marketing. That's uh, that's me in a nutshell. That's very cool. And lots of uh, lots of different ways to go in that. So I'm glad you, you gave a little bit of a definition of behavioral science. Um, I what comes to mind for me is the the idea or the saying like, don't listen to what people say, watch what they do. And I yes. think that's kind of the heart of behavioral science, if I'm not mistaken. Sean, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, if you if you ask people, you know, uh, why did you do that? Why did you buy that product? Or why didn't you like that ad? You know, they'll tell you what they think is the reason. But very often what they're unaware of is there are other factors, underlying factors that that influence their decision. Um, and and these, these underlying factors can kind of push them in one direction or another. And, you know, then people think, oh, well, I made the decision for this reason, but what they don't realize is there are other things at play. So, uh, you know, emotion is one of them. And a lot of times we think that it's all about the rational reasons. If we provide the the facts, the speeds, the feeds, the, the price, the, you know, features and benefits. That's what we justify that. It, it's, that's how we justify with the logic, right? But we really don't that's, make the decision based on that. You're absolutely right. We make the decision emotionally and then we justify with, with the rational reason. So, um, uh, you know, so if you ask someone why they bought something, you know, they would tell you, I don't know, I bought the car because of the great, you know, mileage that, uh, you know, that it had or that, you know, the uh, energy efficiency engine that it has. And it might be very different than that. It might be that those were factors, but what really tipped them over was they thought they looked darn good uh, in that white car with their tan with the convertible <laughs> top down, you know? Exactly. That's the real reason. Uh, yeah. So I'm excited about this because this is, um, if you can start to notice why people are doing things and, and what they're actually doing, like even if you don't know why, but if you know what they do when, when you put out these certain triggers, but I can't wait to hear more about, um, you can just throw the triggers out there and just, you know, not have to, I know you got to figure stuff out, but like, it seems like your method may be a little bit easier and it's obviously effective based on some of the stats Jonathan was throwing out. So yeah. Yeah. Tell us, you know, it's, tell uh, us it's, where it's, do you, where do you start with all this? Like I'm a copywriter or I'm a, somebody with a business or whatever, like, how do I start incorporating more behavioral science into my, like, where do you start? Sure, sure. So, you know, so first I'll say uh, it, it absolutely makes you more effective, but there's, you know, there's no magic bullet. There's no magic wand, you know, 
none of us can make everybody do what we want them to do all of the time. It's, it's not going to happen. But this will increase the likelihood that you'll, uh, you'll get the response you're looking for if you're a marketer or if you're just a business person doing marketing. So, you know, where do you start? That's a great question. So what you want to do is you want to think about what it is you want your target market to do. And what's the number one reason they're likely not going to do that? So, you know, you want them to do something. What's the thing that's standing in their way? You want to identify that that buying barrier, that behavioral barrier, and then you want to look at the best argument to overcome it. So, uh, you know, maybe you're a your business that's moving into a new area, and so the the biggest buying barrier is people don't know who you are. They're like, well, I don't know who they are. I'm not going to trust them. I don't feel comfortable buying from them. So if, if you've identified that, that happens to be the, the biggest buying barrier, then you can start to look at different behavioral science triggers. Uh, one thing you could look at is social proof. People have a tendency to do what people like them do. So uh, you could talk about the, you know, the number of other customers who've made the same decision you're asking that person to make, or you could run some customer testimonials. Uh, the other thing you could do is you could look at the authority principle. Say, okay, people don't know us. We're new to this area, but we've been endorsed by some of the biggest names in, in the industry, or we, you know, we're members of the industry association, or we've appeared on, you know, network TV. So you kind of point to these authorities and that makes people feel like, oh, okay, you know, maybe they're, uh, you know, they're a good person to do business with or a good company to do business with. So you really want to look at, you know, why somebody doesn't want to do what you want them to do. And then you start to look at how you could overcome that, that barrier and create the behavior you're looking for. Um, but I have an interesting example that I think, uh, you guys might might really appreciate it was for a beer company so would you like to like to hear a little bit about it hey you said beer company so that's my yeah, word <laughs> so uh so i i came across this it was an award-winning campaign i thought it was fabulous so there was a company called um db export out of new zealand okay. and they were they wanted people to drink more beer and the problem was it was a declining market there's a lot of competition and you know so you can go out there and say hey you know drink some more beer you know you'll have, you know, more fun with your friends or, you know, you deserve it or, you, you know, any number of things you could say. But what they did is they, in brewing their beer, they took the leftover yeast and they created a biofuel with it. And so what they did is they reframed the act of drinking their beer as not just a, you know, an indulgence, but as a, as an act of saving the world, right? The more beer that you drank, the more of their beer that you drank, the more biofuel they could create and the, you know, the fewer uh, uh. carbons that would be released into the atmosphere. And uh, so it was, you know, suddenly it wasn't just, oh, I'm having a beer because I want one. It was like, I'm doing my part to save saving the world, save the world, you know, and uh, one they glass got, at they a time. <laughs> glass at a time. Exactly. Yeah. But they got a 10% lift in sales during yeah. a declining market, you know, by wow. reframing how people thought about, you know, consuming the product. So mm -hmm. the words that we use to describe our product or our service or our value proposition can make a big difference in terms of how people react to it, how they understand it and, you know, the actions they take around it. So I thought that was a, a great example of, of framing and mm -hmm. framing is in fact, one of those behavioral science principles that marketers have at their disposal. Yeah. That's, That's really interesting that, you know, you take a beer brand and, and couple it with like this environmental, you, you wouldn't necessarily expect those two to go together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, somebody was, was that one of your campaigns or is that just a campaign that you knew about? It was, uh, yeah, no, it was done by, uh, not by me. It was done by a company, uh, an agency called Colenso BBDO. And um, it, it was award-winning. It, it, they ran it a few years ago, but I just, I thought it was really fabulous. I saw it at an award show, did a little bit more research on it and it made its way into the book as a, you know, what I thought a good example of framing. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. No, yeah, like we talked, Sean and I talked about this whole idea, um, I think last week on the show or maybe a couple episodes, but just reframing, you know, the challenge for, or the, um, you know, every copywriter, every marketer should be doing this is taking what, you know, your product, whatever product or you're trying to market or sell to the public and stop using the same, start looking for other opportunities out there or other ways that you can reframe it in, in a completely different way. Like you've just mentioned, you know, not just, you know, every beer company does the same thing yet. This company did something very unique and appealed to something completely different than what most of their competition was doing. Yeah. And it, it gave you like this noble exactly. cause yeah. for your, you know, your indulgence, your, you know, your, the thing you maybe isn't great for you. And now all of a sudden you can, they transcended Yes. Beer drinking, right. basically, right, is what they've done. Right. Just took it to a whole save the world level. Mm -hmm. Reminds me of like the real men of genius ads from Budweiser and stuff. It's like, <laughs> That's right. you too could save the world. 
<laughs> one glass at a time. One glass at a time. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's funny, the, uh, you know, the, the behavioral science principles that can be applied when you're trying to actually persuade someone, you know, one thing is reframing something, getting them to, to view it a different way, ideally your way, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. drink more yeah. beer, save the world. Um, but, you know, behavioral scientists have found things that, um, that are small, that are also very effective. For example, uh, people are more likely to do what you ask them to do if you give them a reason why. Mm. And, you know, a lot of times in marketing, we think, you know, we're putting the information in front of people. They've got all, you know, everything that they need. Do I really need to complete the circle by saying why they should do something? And it turns out that you do. There was a researcher out of Harvard. Her name was Ellen Langer. And she identified the word because as an automatic compliance trigger. So in other words, when we see or hear the word because, we're more likely to start to agree. And she ran this experiment. People were lined up to use a photocopier and she instructed someone to go to the head of the line and say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you? And 60% of the time, people were allowed to cut, six zero. But then she repeated the experiment and this time she instructed the person to go to the head of the line and say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you because I have some copies to make. Well, the 60% number climbed to 93%. Big difference, right? Huge lift. But, but when you think about it, everybody was standing in line because they had some copies to make, right? Exactly. You don't stand line your ex machine to get a Starbucks. It doesn't work that way. So she identified the word because as an automatic compliance trigger. When people see or hear it, they automatically start to agree before they've even processed what comes next. They're just in this agreeable, compliant mindset. So it, again, it's little things like this when we're trying to persuade people, little things like this, like tiny word choices or framing something one way or another or phrasing something differently yeah. or swapping out one word for another that can actually make a big difference. Yeah. It's like it's Scott Adams. I like, he sometimes calls it even the, the, the worst reasons, like the fake because like, even if it's not a good reason, it's just, it, people will, a lot of times comply just because of that word. It's a very powerful word uh, because, because we have to have some rationale or we have to have some justification why we're, why we're being compliant or why we're doing what we're doing. There has to be a why behind it and it can be very menial why, but as long as it's there. Exactly. As long as it's there. Yeah. And it's, it's because we're, again, we're cruising along on autopilot. We're not really stopping and thinking and analyzing each decision. You know, I mean, if we did, we'd be like, wait a minute, I'm standing in line because I have some copies to make, you know, but we're, we're conserving mental energy. So, uh, so these things make a difference. Yeah. What are some other little shortcuts like that that take, uh, is that called heuristics when you have a shortcut in your brain? Is that that right? Yeah. Yeah. Heuristics or or decision-making shortcuts, uh, but yeah, uh, or decision default and any of those terms actually work. Um, one of one of them is this idea of um, autonomy bias. Humans are hardwired to crave some kind of control over themselves or their environments. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you might, if you're a psychologist, you might say people want agency, but we want some kind of control over ourselves and our environments. And researchers, you know, tested and they found that this is really deep rooted. It may in fact even be biological. They ran an experiment with people in a um, old age home, you know, retirement home, assisted living facility, something like that. And the control group was given certain movies to watch and um, a plant that they could grow in their, um, in their um, room. And the test group was allowed to choose the movies that they were going to watch and choose the plant that they could grow in the room. But yeah, everyone was going to watch movies. Everyone was going to have a plant in the room. The only difference was some people would choose the plant or choose the movies. And after 18 months, what they found was the people in the test, in the control group, the ones who didn't have a choice, twice as many of them had died. Uh, you know, it's like, it's, you know, we, we have this desire for control. So, you know, all right, so interesting, but where does this go with marketing? Well, choices make us feel like we have, in, we have some kind of control. So instead of just putting one option in front of someone, you're much better off putting down, you know, two or three. Because if you put one thing in front of someone, you know, the decision is, do I or do I not want this? And you think there's no context, there's nothing to compare it to. Maybe I'll sleep on it. Maybe I'll do some research. Maybe I'll talk to my business partner or my spouse or whatnot. And, you know, life intervenes. You just don't get around to doing that research. But if you put two things down, the question isn't do I or do I not want this? It's which of these two do I want? It's almost like a foregone conclusion. You're going to get one of them. You know, so providing choices is is really, really uh, yeah. important for marketers. Tulane University ran a study and they found you can quadruple the likelihood that someone will make a buying decision in the moment if you provide a choice. Mm -hmm. And and then related to that, there's this great little phrase. It's the BYAF technique, where BYAF stand for, but you are free. And what researchers have found is, you know, you can describe your product or service, you can, you know, tell people about it and then ask them to 
to do what you want them to do, you know, buy or try or, or buy again, whatever it is. But then you just say to them, but you are free to choose, but the choice is yours, but it's up to you. You know, yeah. Jonathan, I'd really like to do this, but you know, it's up to you, Sean, you know, I'd really like to do this, but you know, the choice is yours. And just having that phrase can double the likelihood that people will say yes. Uh, you wow. know, just remind, and it, it's almost counterintuitive, you know, like I'm, I'm trying so hard to sell you. Why would I at the very end of it say, but you know what, it's up to you. But it turns out that that can double the likelihood, just reminding people that they're the ones in control because it taps into autonomy bias. So that stack right there that you just mentioned. So having choice, yep. you said increases by how much? Like, uh, <laughs> Tulane University found having a choice can nearly quadruple the buying decision in the moment. Wow. wow. And then you Quite and then true. you tack on the BYF and that's another that can double the likelihood that people yeah, say yes. Like that's, yeah. That's so, a pretty those two little things are super easy to add. Yes. Um to, to any campaign. Uh, that brings a question though, like do you have any data or any information on how different those choices need to be? How similar are they? Like what's you have any insight on that? Oh, you know, that's interesting. So I'm thinking back to the research that I read. And uh, one of the studies, what, the one from Tulane, it was um, it was like electronics equipment. And it was, um, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it was, you know, two, two of the same kind of thing, whether it was, you know, earphones or, uh, you know, a recorder or something like that. But, you know, it was just, you know, two different options in the same category. So, um, you know, so, I mean, they would... I think in order to optimize the, the effect of it, they'd have to be, you know, kind of equal choices. You know, right. if it's, I don't know, you, you, I'm going to offer you a piece of fruit. Do you want an apple or an orange, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed yeah. to do you want an apple or a steak, you know, like mm -hmm. kind of different categories yeah. altogether. So, you know, something, or, you know, maybe I'm going to submit a proposal to a client and, you know, maybe I give them a couple of different options. You know, we can do, you know, we can do the, you know, A to Z version, which will take six months, or we can do the abbreviated ABC version, and that'll only take three months. You know, at the end of the, you know, the day, we're going to give you something that you can use that's going to help answer your problem or your challenge, but, mm -hmm. you know, here's two flavors of it. So I'd say that they, they need to be in the same ballpark sure, to, right. to be effective. There's yeah. something other, there's something else very powerful in that, that there's an assumptive aspect of that, is that you're moving past the just making a decision yeah, and you're moving you beyond that to saying, okay, we're past the, whether you will, it's which one. Right. And so it's kind of like you've in from their, from their standpoint, they're, they're making the decision, you know, so that assumes you're moving forward. Right. So it's, it's almost like, like that assumptive close um, that you've taken them beyond just making a decision to what should I to which one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've, I've um, shared this example at different conferences and every once in a while, somebody will come up to me and say, I know that <laughs> what you're talking about works because in order to get my little kid to get dressed in the morning, what right. I found is I say, you can wear this outfit or this outfit. And it mm -hmm. works like a charm. Right. And, you know, so it's like you, you hear about these, you know, these behavioral science principles. And of course, I speak about them in terms of marketing because that's my thing. But uh, they really do govern how people behave, not just in a marketing sense, but just how we behave. And, Absolutely. When, you know, when parents will come up and say, works like a charm with my kid trying to get him dressed in the morning. I was like, you know, that's awesome. That's such a great some serious stress just by that one little principle alone, you know, going straight to choices instead of <laughs> fight them with fighting with your kids on just actually doing it, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I remember, you know, years ago when I was just starting out in the business, my creative director came in and he was like, I finally have the lead for this letter I'm writing. You know, mm -hmm. and I've been wrestling with it and wrestling with it. Right, I finally got it. And uh, the, the assignment was to try to get people to choose AT&T as a long distance company, try to get businesses to choose AT&T as a long distance company. And his lead was something like, um, if you don't make a decision soon, someone will make it for you, which was true because this was a period of time where if you didn't make a decision, you were going to get either sent to AT&T or to Sprint or to MCI. This is again, right. going back some time, but, um, but he landed on this and the, you know, the piece got almost a 40% um, response rate. And I talked yeah. to him about it later at the time. I didn't really understand autonomy bias. I was just a young writer, you know, but yeah, years sure. later, you know, he and I were still in touch and I was, you know, I talked to him about it and I said, how did you land there? And he said, you know what? The, the audience was huge. We knew it was businesses. We didn't mm -hmm. know if they were small mom and pops or really large ones that, you know, the data wasn't segmented. But I thought the one thing that anyone who, you know, owned a business would respond to was the idea that someone was going to take their 
decision-making ability away from them. And he was absolutely right. You know, neither he nor I were thinking autonomy bias, but that's exactly where he landed. And it, it proved itself in the market. It was fabulous. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the core, you know, kind of human drives is that freedom and, you know, the power of choice and that kind of stuff that, you know, we all want or we think we're striving for. It's why people want more money, right? Because they don't want the money. They want the choice that the money's going to buy or they think it's going to buy. So, yeah that, yeah, that makes sense. So that would be a very, very powerful one. Um, and I'm reminded, too, like there's a, a cognitive bias wheel. I think it's about 188 different cognitive biases that you could probably go down the list and use, you know, most of these four. So, yeah. um, Jonathan, I think, do you have a list of questions there that? Well, I do. I've, I've got, you know, I've actually gone through uh, your book, Nancy, and one of the things I want to kind of zero on, you've, you've got one chapter on that I'm, I, I want our listeners to hear, but it's on encouraging sales and loyalty through the consistency principle and the, what you call the, uh, how do you pronounce it? The Zygarnik? Oh, the, the Zygarnik effect. Zygarnik. What is the Zygarnik effect? I've never heard of this. I saw that in the uh, table of contents. I was wondering <laughs> the same thing. So uh, it's it's named after a, a Russian uh, sociologist named Bluma Zygarnik. And okay. uh, basically what it means is we have a tendency to remember things that are unfinished or incomplete. So it's why cliffhangers work so well in the media, right? Uh, where, you know, I know, we're watching uh, Game of Thrones or something, and then it's mm-hmm. like it's done for a while until the next, ep- you know, next series of episodes come out. And we're like, we can't wait for that next season because we yeah. want to know what happens next. How is it going to end? So it's this human desire to not leave things incomplete and to, to have them kind of bug us, like just kind of nag away at us uh, until we can, you know, cross them off uh, mm-hmm. the list or check them off the list. And she actually kind of uh, was spurred on to do research into this because she was watching uh, waiters, servers in a restaurant or a cafe. And it seems that they would be great at remembering people's orders until they delivered the orders. And then once the server had delivered the orders, it just like went right out of their head. They didn't remember, you know, who ordered what or who uh, was who, but until they could get the order in front of people, they had this incredible, you know, ability to remember it. So, you know, it's these, you know, incomplete tasks that we have a tendency to remember. So when you couple that with something like the commitment and consistency principle, which basically holds that um, once you make a decision, mm-hmm. you like to remain consistent with it when future opportunities arise and you generally do so with, you know, without giving the matter a lot of thought, it becomes very powerful for marketers because what it suggests to marketers is if you can get somebody to say yes once, yes. you're much more likely to get them to say yes the second time, a third time, a fourth time without giving the matter a lot of thought. You know, we make the decision once and then all you have to do is remind people, hey, you know, you signed up for this or, you know, you send them something and it's, and you, oh yeah, right, I already vetted that company. I do business with them and we just kind of, you know, default to it. We, you know, we don't apply the same scrutiny to that marketing message that we would if it were coming from someone we'd never done business with before. And why does that work so well? Because people don't want to seem flaky, right? I mean, ultimately, they don't want to seem inconsistent or... You know. Exactly. You know, we, once we make a decision or take a stand, we like to remain consistent with it. We don't sure. like to look like we flip flop, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, so not only does it, it save mental energy and, and that we don't have to rethink each decision, but it helps us save yeah. face. You know, it helps yeah. us remain consistent. So, you know, getting those first small yeses. A lot of times in marketing, you know, we go for the big yes. You know, we want the sale, like do some business with me, buy my product, sign up for my service. That's the ultimate ask, but there's a lot of little ones that ladder up to it. Anything from, you know, deciding to open my email or visiting my website or, you know, watching a video or tuning into a webinar, you know, all of these things will ladder up to the ultimate yes. And so if you get that first one, you can get a a slightly larger ask and a slightly larger ask. And the next thing you know, you can, you know, increase the likelihood you'll get the final yes. And it's, 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 um, it's hard to believe that, works you know if, when you first start looking at it, or even if you've been doing it a while you're like is that really doing anything because because there, there's no clear like there's not a credit card entered at any of those pre yes ask you know what i mean like so it's sometimes it's hard to you just have to trust that that's happening that as you ask people to do stuff they're getting more and more compliant as they go mm-hmm. um, yeah. i'm sure it's that's that's something i know it's like when i've written copy in the past it's like 
you kind of want to cut some of that stuff out. Cause you're like, I don't know if that's really working. Or if you're in a sales presentation, Jonathan, like yeah. I really need to get them to start nodding their head. Yes. Or right. like, you know, maybe I can skip this part of the presentation, mm-hmm. but it really does matter. That's what I'm hearing you say, Nancy. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, there've even been uh, some research studies done with um, fundraisers where if they kind of, you know, open the fundraising call with something innocuous, like, you know, uh, Sean, I hope you're feeling well today. Or, you know, Jonathan, how are you feeling today? You know, and, and, you know, you've now you've said, you know, yes, I am feeling well, or, or I am feeling well. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. You know, you've kind of gone on record mm-hmm. as saying, you know, things are good for you. It's really hard now to turn around and, and then not make a donation to a cause for, you know, some, you know, person who's got it worse off than you do. Like here you are, <laughs> life is good. Yeah. And now you're, you know, you're saying you can't make a small donation, you know, yeah. like you see, it's almost like you, you want to be consistent. You've said, yes, things are good. And now you want to say, yes, I'll make a donation. So it is funny, you know, you, like, uh, like you said, Sean, we just have to trust that it works, but there are a lot of studies out there that, that indicate that it does. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's consistency with your previous actions and it's, it's consistency with the, uh, um, you know, the stand that you've taken. I think they, there was a, a couple of researchers in LA, they went out to a neighborhood in LA and they asked people how they felt about safe driving. And, uh, people said, yeah, you know, course I, I'm in favor of safe driving it's kind of hard not to be in favor of safe driving so they asked people if they would put up a billboard on their front lawn that said that they supported safe driving and so here you know people are starting to back off they're like I want to put a billboard on my front lawn what you know what are the neighbors going to think what's it going to do to my yeah. view what's it going to do to my property value like come on so most people uh said no but there was a small subsegment, 17 percent of the people that said yes and uh and in that or there was a small subsegment, 17 percent of the people um and in that segment small subsegment, 76% of that 17% said yes. And so we have to say to ourselves, why? But it turned out that a couple of weeks earlier, researchers had come by and asked these people, you know, do you uh, support safe driving? And they said yes. And they said, well, would you display a small two inch by two inch sign either on your door or, or your you know, windshield saying that you support safe driving? And these people had said yes. So a couple of weeks later, when researchers came back and they were different researchers, but researchers came back again with this idea of, you know, safe driving, the people who had said yes to the small two inch by two inch side sign, they were the ones, 76% of those said yes to the billboard, you know, and it was, wow. you know, consistent with their previous behavior. It was consistent with how they saw themselves. You know, I see myself as someone who supports safe driving. It was consistent with the stand that they took. So it's, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing, but the, you know, the, the data don't lie. The, the proof was in the numbers. Sure. That's interesting that it was different researchers, different time periods. Like that's good for marketers. I think on a longer term view, like it doesn't have to be inside the same presentation is what I'm hearing you say. Right. Like yeah. this could just be over time in your social media posts and your other things. You could be dropping little questions or hints or getting people to respond in a certain way so that when you do make your ask two weeks down the road, they're more likely to say yes. Absolutely. I, one of one of the great examples I saw of this, I, I didn't write this, I just received it. So, um, so I, I, I don't have a lot of details, but it was from Amtrak and they sent me an email and they said, oh, you know, uh, our double days promotion is coming up, you know, soon, but you need to enroll now if you want to take advantage of it. So, okay, that's fine. So you enroll, right? And at this point in time, you, you don't have to spend any money. You don't have to plan a trip. You're just saying, oh yeah, you know, if I were to travel during the promo period, I want those double points. So people signed up and then, you know, a month or so later, they get an email that says, hey, double days are here. Since you signed up, now's the time to take a trip. And, you know, you kind of feel like, yeah, like I signed up. I I guess the next step is to take a trip. Like I wouldn't have signed up if I didn't want to eventually, you know, get these double points by taking a trip. So it's just that little extra nudge. And um, again, I'm not privy to the results because I didn't do that work, but I thought that's a great example. You know, it wasn't in the same email, you know, there was a bit of time that, that passed, but they were building on that, uh, that initial yes by now coming back with a larger ask, hoping sure. to get that, that uh, second yes. Right. I saw some of that this year in the Black Friday campaigns. It, there was a lot of, there's quite a few companies, at yeah. least that I'm on their <laughs> list. They offered these pre-Black Friday early bird lists that you could sign up for. So they, they'd be like, hey, if you, we're going to have this great Black Friday sale, but we're going to have an even better one for our are really the subscribers that we really love, you know, that get on the early bird list. So you signed up for this early bird list and then sure enough, like Tuesday before Black Friday, they said, here's the best deal. This is even better than our Black Friday deal because you're on this list. It's only available to you. And I bought something, so. There you go, that's nice. (laughs) It works. Then that's got a little bit of um, 
exclusivity into it mm -hmm. as well, right? A little yeah. bit of exclusivity baked into it, I should say, um, because, you know, it's like you're going to get something that not everyone else has access to by virtue of the fact that you're on this list. And, you know, we all love to have access to things other people don't have. Insider whether, information. You know, <laughs> insider information, right? You know, discounts or information yeah. or access. You know, we love to like lord it over our friends, you know, right. like I have this and, and you don't, you know, I, I was the first one to try the, you know, the pizza of the month. Who cares? Mm -hmm. We yeah. care, apparently. <laughs> you yeah. know? It's like we love to have that. So not only did you, you know, commit yourself by signing up, but you also got to enjoy some exclusivity that you were getting better deals than anyone else, which, you know, that's a pretty powerful combo. Yeah. And I think what's important, too, is on the marketer's end, you have to keep that that promise. Mm -hmm. Cause I was watching, I was like, okay, it, did I really get a better deal than black Friday? And sure enough, I did. It was probably 10 bucks, 20 bucks difference. Um, even above their black Friday. So, or below their black Friday, I guess. So yeah, Sean, that's a, that is a really good point. That idea that you need to kind of, you know, put your money where your mouth is, if you will, like if you're going to make a promise, uh, you have to, you have to live yeah. up to it and with yeah. any of these, you know, if you're saying, you know, if you're going to use the scarcity principle and say there are, you know, this sale is only on for a week, you better not extend it. You yeah. know, yeah. or if there's <laughs> only, a lot of that this know, year, yep. if there's only 10 of these left, there better not be 20 more in the stock room because that does kind of, you know, blow back on, you know, uh, you know, I mean, extending a sale, you know, I guess maybe that could be good news for somebody who who missed it the first time but you know it's like saying like you, like you don't want to abuse this you don't want to lie about it you know you want to say look this yeah. is the last one and you know you know you're sitting on a hundred of them that you know it's just not right and you might get the short-term sale but in the long term it, it erodes brand trust and and yes. uh you i know, think amazon does that a lot do you notice that amazon if you buy so you know if you buy something maybe it's through uh, yeah, I don't know. Third party. Well, they have some, they don't update the, uh, when you buy something and there's nine left or three left and you order, you know, I don't see the, they also change prices based on how many times you've looked at the product. Yes. Like they will, they yes. will drop the product yep. price or raise the price yep. um, depending on behavior. Yep. So, um, what are some other cool, like behavior things? What's some of your favorite kind of behavior things that you've learned over the years, Nancy? So, uh, you know, there's one called um, availability bias, which I think is pretty interesting. And mm. it's this idea that people will judge the likelihood of an event happening based on how easily they can recall a relevant example. Um, so, and if you're, like you're someone who never flies, for example, and someone says to you, how safe is it to fly? And like, well, I don't know, I've never set foot on an airplane, but, you know, but, uh, but what would become available to you immediately when someone asked that question is any newspaper report, any television news story you heard about airplanes. And you would find yourself thinking, gee, the last several stories I heard about an airplane seem to involve, you know, an, an engine piece dropping off mid-flight or the plane having to quickly turn around and go back to the airport it took off from because there was yeah. a mechanical problem or maybe there were even, you know, crashes and fatalities. And, you know, you would think having never been on an airplane, but just having heard these stories, it's not all that safe to fly. And that's an example of availability bias. You know, we, we will judge the likelihood of something happening, um, you know, based on how easily we, we recall an example. So from a marketing perspective, what that means is people are going to judge the likelihood of an event happening. The event would be their need for the product or service we're offering them based on how readily they can think of themselves, you know, needing it. So before we ask them to buy, we should use some availability bias. We should first get them to think of a time in the past when if they'd had our product or service, it'd come in really handy, you know, or just even um, get them to imagine a time in the future when they could see themselves using it. So instead of just rushing right in with the news of the product or the service and the benefits of the product or the service, it can help to, to use availability bias to kind of, you know, set the stage or, or lay the groundwork and get people thinking, oh yeah, I, I could see myself using that. Or had I had that before, I definitely would have used it. That means I could probably, you yeah. know, use it in the future. So availability bias is a, is a nice little behavioral science uh, tactic to use. Sure. I like that. Yeah, I could see how, especially saying, if you can get people to think about a time in the past when they would have used your product, that, that to me sounds really, really powerful because yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on there with, with the brain and how it works and what it's looking at. And, um, cause right. The idea is like, if your brain's imagining something, it's almost as if it's already happened. Like mm -hmm. it's almost as if it's true. Right. So I could definitely see how that would be impactful. What else? What are, what's some of your other, uh, uh so, uh, so another, it's funny that you're talking about, you know, the brain and it's like, if, you know, if you're, if the brain is thinking about it, it's like, it almost, it's almost like it happened, you know, so storytelling has that effect too. When we're listening to stories, we kind of 
get transported into that world and we start to feel what the character is feeling. And, you know, so stories are, are really good that, you know, for, uh, for that reason, it's like, you know, you, you put yourself in the shoes of the, of the character and you start to feel what they're feeling. And so, you know, you tell a story about someone who benefited from your product or service. And the next thing you know, the person who's reading the story or listening to the story is feeling that same emotion uh, that the character did that, you know, that pride of accomplishment or that relief that they, you know, were saved from a, you know, a, a problem. So, so storytelling can be really good, but, you know, just speaking about individual words, we talked about the word because, but another one of those power words is the word imagine. Mm. And uh, the reason for this is when you ask someone to imagine something, a couple of things happen. So one thing that happens is right away, they just kind of relax a little bit, right? Their defenses go down because we're not talking about the here and now. We're not talking about reality. We're just, we're just going to imagine something, right? It's all imagination <laughs> yeah. land. So it's like, so right away, people kind of relax, their defenses go down. But then what happens is when you ask someone to imagine something, they start to create a mental picture, right? I, I'm going to ask you to, you know, imagine what it would be like to use these new skis. And so you start to think about what it would be like to, to be using these new skis. And you put yourself on the mountain that you like to ski, in the weather you like to ski, in the conditions you like to ski, in, wearing your favorite ski apparel. Like you create a tailor-made mental image of yourself using these skis going down the mountain much better than I could if I was just trying to create one, you know, because I'm asking you to imagine it. And then once you have that mental image, this is really key. You're seeing yourself do it. And before you can decide to physically take an action, you have to be able to see yourself doing it. You know, if, if, you know, if you had said to me, Sean, you know, Nancy, would you ever jump out of an airplane? I would say to you, uh, I just can't see myself doing that. You know, like that, I just can't see myself doing that. And there's, that's very telling because if you can't see yourself doing something, you're just not going to physically do it. So if you can see yourself doing it, if you can create that mental picture, if you can imagine it, it's not that much, you know, the mental picture is always better than the actual too. Right. I mean, the way we imagine it. Sure, because you've customized it exactly to you. It's going to be a perfectly sunny day and you're going to be in a good mood and you're going to be feeling great and you're not going to be fatigued, you know, and you're going to be making perfect turns on that mountain, right? You know, that's why I believe that every, you know, all the, every book that's ever been made into a movie, most of the time, the movies are never as good as the book. Right. Because our minds are so much, our, our brains are so much better at imagining. Yeah. We had a different voice for the character. We Absolutely. Had, the scenes were slightly. Everything different. was customized. Like you said. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Stephen King in his book on writing, he talks about that. And one of, yep. he talks about one of those things when you're writing a scene, he talks about, uh, I think it's the one where he had the, the pink or the purple rabbit. I can't remember which movie that was, but um, he's like, you just say there's a, you know, a purple rabbit in a, in a gilded cage, but you don't, he said, you don't go on describing the, the cage for two pages. Like some writers like to do, yep. you let the reader fill that in. Cause what's important is the purple rabbit, not yep. the cage. That's right. You yeah, let no, them fill in the cage <laughs> and then you move on. Exactly. And yep, plus yep. they can do it so much faster in their mind than you can in, in writing out yep. the text. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. You know, uh, the the disappointment when your favorite book gets turned into a movie, and you're like, yeah. no, they they don't sound right, they don't look right, like this is all wrong. You're missing all the stuff that I put in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My daughter, my daughter complains about that all the time. It's like she, <laughs> she's like, she watched the Hunger Games. That was one of her favorite things, you know, growing up, and she's kind of gone back into them in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. She's like, they did so good following the books, and then the third book, they just totally went a different way and it ruined everything. It's like, so yeah, it's true. It's like, yeah. Um, and I think when you, when you offer imagination, you, like I was saying with the Stephen King example, you can't give too many details for exactly that reason. You want them to fill in the details. You just need enough to guide them That's right. yep. along, but not pull them out. I'm going through a hypnosis course right now. And that's one of the things he talks about when you're going through it, when you're putting somebody into a trance, He's like, you want them to, and you're trying to get them to recall a scene. You have to keep it vague enough that they fill in the, the details. All Otherwise the details. it pulls them out of the trance because right. they're like, no, that's not right. Yep. You know? So if I say your example, Nancy, like skiing down a heavily wooded s- slope and there's Aspen trees everywhere. Well, if I ski in Utah, you know, maybe there's not as many Aspen trees as there is in Colorado where I ski, or if I ski on the East coast, it's all pine trees, you know, like, and ice, it would, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it would totally pull me out of the experience. Cause I'd be like, no, that's not where I usually ski. <laughs> right. And then you're, you've lost the trance. That's you've right. lost the, yep. the whole imagination. Cause now they're arguing with you instead of following <laughs> right. 
along. Right, right. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like, you know, you're trying to move people along in the trance. Mm-hmm. And what happens is they kind of hit this roadblock and they just keep, they're stuck there. They can't quite get the right mental picture. That's yeah, really fascinating. They, wow. And they move wow. on to something else. Yeah. yeah. So um, can you give us a couple examples or one example of kind of your favorite um, campaign that you did and kind of what ha- what the problem was when they came to you, how you came up with the solution and, and then kind of the results? Uh, yeah, sure. There's there's a couple of them, and uh, yeah, I, I want to you know say this is stuff that I worked on um, with my team. It wasn't all mm-hmm, me, yeah, so sure. I want to make sure that uh, you know anyone who might be listening doesn't go. She ran off with that. And never <laughs> even acknowledged us, but uh, it was me and the team. Um, but th- I'll give you two. Uh, one was for a. Um, a business intelligence software product. So mm-hmm. we're in the B2B world, we're dealing with um, a sophisticated uh, product, we're dealing with a sophisticated target market, an audience that, that would use it, it was be high level executives. And this particular business intelligence product um, was able to unlock data from disparate databases so that you could get a full 360 view. So you could take a number of different approaches. You could kind of explain what the product does. And all right, look, you've got data that, you know, maybe, you know, uh, is locked in two, three, four different databases, and uh, this is going to unlock it all so you have it all together. Or you could take up, you know, maybe a problem solution approach and say, your problem is this, you know, data is all locked away in different databases, and so you're being asked to make decisions without all the information you need, and as a result, you know, you're going to make a wrong one, and and you're going to lose out, right? It's Mm -hmm. only a matter of time. Um, And then the the approach that we ended up taking was a much more emotional one. We, We led with what it must feel like to be a member of the target market who knows that they're being asked to make these very important decisions all the time without all the necessary information. And uh, so we had a series of headlines, things like um, the antacid for uh, a diet of tough decisions or the delete button for that voice in your head or the, uh, the brown paper bag for financial hyperventilation. But, you know, basically just leading with like what it must feel like, a very emotional play. And then, of course, explaining the product and what it did and, and why it would make sense to uh, to get it uh, from them. But but we went in with, um, you know, with three different campaigns for testing. You know, two of them were, you know, one was more straightforward, one was more problem solution, and one was more emotionally driven. And what we found was the emotionally driven one was the one that really resonated. It got a... Um, uh, 11% bump in uh, brand favorability and a 13% bump in terms of purchase intent. And I believe the reason was uh, for the target market, if they looked at that, I believe that they thought if these people understand my world so well, they probably do have a product that I could use because they absolutely know what I'm feeling. They know what it's like to be you know, asked to make these decisions where it's not just my job on the line, but it's, it's the job of many of the employees in the company, or maybe it's the reputation of the company, or maybe you know, it's, it's a decision that could get us into uh, regulatory problems or financial problems. You know? And there's, there's a lot of, of uh, you know, weight that's resting on my shoulders, and these people really understand it, and they know that I go home at night and I can't sleep, and they know that I get home, I go home at night and I stomach is in knots. And uh, so I, I thought that, you know, I thought that was a really good example of using emotion in a B2B environment and, you know, having the numbers to, to back it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think uh, a, a second example would be one that uh, used the reciprocity principle, which we haven't yet spoken about, but the reciprocity principle is this idea of give to get. And what behavioral scientists have found is if somebody gives you something, whether or not you asked for it, but if somebody gives you something, you feel kind of indebted to them. You feel obliged to return the favor. So if someone does a favor for you, you feel like you should return it. If someone sends you a birthday card, you think, oh, I got to remember their birthday and send them a, a card on it. Or, you know, if you go out for drinks with your buddies after work and someone picks up the tab, you know, you think, all right, I'm going to get the next round. And if there isn't a next round, yeah. you think, all right, the next time we go, I've got to make sure, like, we just, we don't like to feel like we're in an owing position. We like to just clear the state slate or even the slate. So, um, so this idea of reciprocity can be very, very powerful. So a client came to us, it's a financial services client, and they had been trying for the last year or so to reactivate some financial advisors who used to sell their product, but who had stopped. And they just couldn't get these financial advisors to return an email or return a phone call. And they'd stopped 12 months or more ago. So it wasn't like, you know, it was just a a month or so ago where you say, oh, well, maybe they had a downturn in business or maybe they'd been on vacation. Now it was 12 months or more. It was over a year. So you can pretty much assume they had made a decision and they'd moved on. And and as a result, you know, they weren't returning the calls. They weren't returning the emails. And the client said, we really want to try to activate them. So we decided to use the reciprocity principle. And the team came up with this really good idea. They sent out an email to the financial advisors that said, um, hey, watch your mailbox, watch your snail mail. There's a gift we've picked out, especially for you. 
and it's going to be arriving really soon. So you get this email saying, oh, someone's sending me a gift, you know, or not, not someone. I mean, they knew who it was, you know, oh, these yeah. guys are selling me a gift. So a couple of days later in the mail, this white box appears and inside the box is a framed New Yorker cartoon. And the New Yorker cartoon had something to do with some little kid going around his neighborhood selling retirement services. So it was, you know, spot on in terms of the topic for, you know, financial advisors. But not only was it a New Yorker cartoon that was relevant, it included the individual's name in the caption. So Jonathan, yours would have your name in the co- caption. Sean, yours would have your name in the caption. Mine would have my name. So and it was so it was, it was framed. It had your name in the caption. It's personalized. Yeah. I love that. Personalized. Yeah. yeah you know, it, and you, it, you know, so you just know you're going to hang it on the office wall. I mean, how could you not? Right. And then there was a note from the wholesaler that said, Hey, we've been trying to get in touch with you. would love to, you know, just catch up, see how you're doing. What they found was not only did they reconnect and re-engage so many financial advisors who would stop doing business with them, they actually generated $68 million in incremental revenue based on this particular promotion. So I, wow. I thought it was a, a really, really good example of this idea of give to get, you know, be the first one to give. You know, someone might say, I don't know, Nancy, that makes no sense. If they're going to spend money sending a gift, why not send it to the financial advisors that are doing business with them? You know, reinforce the good behavior, thank them for the good behavior. Sure. And, you know, there's certainly some wisdom to that. But the idea of, you know, give to get, trying to you know, get these financial advisors to re-engage by sending a gift like that it really, really paid off incredibly well for them. And uh, just, a, just a great example of, of give to get and a great example of the reciprocity principle. You know, these financial advisors had stopped doing business for quite some time. This is the thing that got them back. You know, you, you're looking at that framed New Yorker cartoon on the wall. And if, if the wholesaler calls, how do you not take the call, right? Yeah, right. Or you're looking at that, you know, and it's, no, it's, you know, it's top of mind. You're like, I can do some business with them. It was. It was incredibly effective. So those are those are a couple of campaigns that bubble to the top right away. And I think Jonathan they, does Jonathan does that. Oh, I use his, it all uh, the time. I, I use it all the time when, uh, when high level, because I'm in B2B. Uh, my, my business is B2B. So when I have executives that I can't, uh, get a response from, I will send out a cartoon and, but it's not tailored. I, you know, that's a great idea having it that's, more personalized that's another, and, and framed. That's yeah, a whole nother step. Yeah. Cause you typically do the big core foam board. Foam right? board. Yeah. I'll do a uh, cartoon that I'll buy the, uh, the rights to and put on a foam board and have it FedExed to them. And that's a good response rate too. But I think even higher having it, you know, having it personalized is like going one step further. I think the key, the key in uh, reciprocity is, you know, don't go overboard. Right. I mean, because, you know, you you don't go buy them like a car. (laughs) I mean, not that you buy them a car, but don't buy, you know, don't do something overly expensive because then they feel like it's probably manipulative, but I think the key is in reciprocity is do something small, do something simple like that. And something that's tailored to them is is even more meaningful to them. So, Absolutely. I think when it, you know, when it's tailored to them, whether it's personalized or whether it's just relevant because of the line of business they're in or, you know, or or the area where they live or or something, you know, absolutely makes, you know, makes a difference. And, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, you can say, hey, you know, no obligation, yeah. but still people feel it. You know, it's, it's one of the things that's hardwired in us. It probably helped us as a species oh, survive yeah. generation after generation after generation. You know, we're just, we're taught to be civil. We're taught to get along. We don't want to be outcast because, you know, the prospects Absolutely. for us wouldn't have been very good. So it's a great thing to take advantage yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. But if you go too high, if it gets too expensive, then it feels like, feels like the mafia. Like, you know how the mafia <laughs> used to send like really expensive things and they're like, oh man, you know, then you're indebted to, you know, so it's got yeah. that feeling, but yeah, doing something small, um, feels like, oh yeah, this was thoughtful, you know, but, it, and, and even more so being tailored to them and personalized to them is incredible. Yeah. yeah if it's something it. they can keep around. I think that just a bonus. Cause like you said, then they're looking at it. Right. And every time they look at it, they can't help but think of who sent it. Exactly. Yeah, it keeps it top of mind. But, you know, sometimes even just, you know, just making information available, you know, having the best, you know, library of how-to videos or, you know, the, you know, the best blog that answers the questions that, you know, the people have about a particular product before they're ready to commit. You know, you you get that kind of information from someone and you start to feel like, well, they're the company I'm going to give my business to, you know, because I benefited from them. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a, you know, an overblown cartoon or a, a personalized cartoon. And it, you know, it's, sometimes it's just giving people what they need when they need it so that uh, they, they yeah. that, that I always bond. remember 
Cialdini, you know, in his book, his classic um, influence, you know, he talked about just like getting them a soda, like a, a like a Coke or something, you know, something simple like that just goes a long That's, way. It's not, I the, mean, not the price of the product or the, the gift. The it's, drug reps know this well as well as anybody, right? I mean, they, they keep half the businesses in the country. I mean, half the restaurants in the, in the country in business with their taking lunches to doctors and nurses oh, and yeah, things like absolutely. that, you know, yeah, cause yeah. it works. Yep. Like you take a box of donuts to the construction crew, you take salads to the, you donuts know, wherever. So it's like, good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can't argue with a donut. Yeah. Right. Well, the, I mean, yeah. the other, the uh, the fundraisers know it too. The fundraising industry, because you need know, to get those, oh, yeah. uh, you know, letter, you know, letter packages, and there's the address labels in them. Yep. Uh, yep. You know, I mean, I remember talking to someone from, um, I think it was the Susan Coleman Foundation. This was at a conference a, a number of years ago, and I said, you know, have you have you found anything to beat it? And she's like, no. And we've tested and we've tested. We've tried all kinds of things. You can't get away from those darn address labels. And yeah. then I talked to a client of, of mine who is in financial services, has nothing to do with fundraising. And she said, you know what? We just tested this package where we sent out address labels and it did really well. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, now it's moved into financial services. But yeah. Uh, yeah. it's it's funny, you know, we, we love to get things for free. I, you know, if you've ever read... Um, uh, Dan Ariely, his book, Predictably oh, yeah. Rational, right? he's got that. an entire chapter in there about the pulling power of the word free and the, you know, the emotional charge it, it oh, creates sure. in us. And uh, so the idea of getting something for free, it's like, ah, this is great. You know, makes us feel good. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So Thanks. Nancy, um, we're getting up on our, yeah. on our time. Did you have any other questions, Jonathan, or I want to make no. sure. Just where can Pete, where can I, our listeners find the book and how can they yeah. learn more? So I noticed uh, on Amazon, it looks like it's probably resale copies. Is there a place to get originals or? So, uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, I think you can get the originals on Amazon. It just came out uh, at the end of August. So, uh, okay. so you can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Kogan page, which is the actual publisher. They have uh, a website. So uh, Kogan page, Amazon, Barnes and Noble target. There are a okay. number of different places. It's in Kindle and uh, uh, paperback. And, and I think that there's a hardcover version that's basically for, um, libraries is what the publisher said to me. They're like, mm -hmm. yeah, very few people buy the hardcover. It's, it's a little pricey. Most people are doing the Kindle and the, and the paperback, but, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, love it. If, if people would pick it up, if you pick it up at, uh, or through Kogan page through their website, it also comes with some downloadable, um, cheat sheets is the wrong word, but you know, uh, downloadable, um, recaps and, um, ah, you know, clip assets notes. And resources, <laughs> you know, uh, to use. So, uh, sure. so that's always good. Good. Um, Cool. Yeah. I love that. All Fantastic. Right. I would uh, encourage in the title of the book uh, to all of our listeners using behavioral science in marketing, drive customer action. Sean, you, uh, there you go. Drive customer action and loyalty by prompting instinctive responses. Um, fantastic book. Um, I've got a copy. Uh, Nancy, thanks so much for uh, spending some time. It's been a pleasure having you on. Just talking about this. I love the whole idea. You know, it made me think, um, we were talking about the power of emotion earlier, just talking about, I was reading an article about, uh, Chrysler, you know, do you guys remember the PT, uh, cruiser, right? I don't think they make, uh, obviously it's no longer around, but, uh, yeah. it was just an example of what we talked about earlier in the show about how people judge or make decisions on emotion where, um, you know, Chrysler was bought out by, um, you know, German company, German car manufacturer, and they went in and the Germans, the German engineers thought the PT Cruiser was absolutely ridiculous and looked stupid from an engineering standpoint. And there's like, there's no way anyone will buy this, this thing. And they relegated it to one factory in Mexico. And guess what? Sales exploded when they introduced it because people just loved the way it looked, I guess. So didn't matter what the uh, how it was engineered or anything i guess people just like thought it was like a cool gangster vehicle or something <laughs> yeah 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 you just and you know and you, they probably or, or not probably they perhaps even did focus groups and again what people say and what they do are two different things you know yeah. people make decisions for uh, for reasons other than what uh, a lot of business people think they're making decisions for so yeah yeah it's crazy <clears throat> and i think that's something everybody on this call can or can can remember is like you can ask people what they want, <clears throat> but they'll tell you what they think you want to hear, not necessarily exactly. what, what right. they, and <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of times they don't know what no. they would actually do mm -mm. until, until they actually have done it. 
Absolutely true. You know, but as a marketer uh, or as a business person who's doing marketing, if you want to at least increase your chances of success, you know, bake in some of these uh, decision-making shortcut triggers into your communications because it, it does have a tendency to prompt these automatic responses, these unthinking responses, and it helps you stack the deck in your favor, which is always a good thing. No doubt. Nancy, thank you so much. Uh, that is Nancy Harhut. She, again, author of the uh, fantastic book. Everybody should check it out. We'll have a link on the show page, Using Behavioral Science and Marketing. Nancy, we hope you have a great weekend. It's been a pleasure having you on and um, look forward to uh, getting this out to our listeners. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Yep. Cheers. You bet. Cheers. Have a great weekend. You too. All right. Good stuff, man. You all right over there? <laughs> yeah. Got a tickle in my throat. I, not great for, not great for a uh, podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. You need to, you must be out of beer because I, you would have taken yeah. a sip by now. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah. I had to switch to electrolytes. <laughs> beer's gone. So. No, good stuff. That was a great discussion. A great book. Uh, reminds me a lot of the uh, the old classic. Um, so I think everybody should. There's actually some uh, additional stuff. Uh, so all of our listeners, if you haven't read this book, you need to grab a copy of Nancy's book. And then along with that, grab a copy of uh, Chidini's book, uh, Influence, Influence, which is a, clax, a classic, this, this yeah. Six Principles. But this, this actually reinforces that book but it adds some additional things onto that that you know that and we've examples and things exactly. like that yeah. yeah so cool very cool well thanks for listening uh sean you want to do a quick follow-up after we'll talk after the uh show or do you have to run? yeah you can do that okay um yeah, to all of our listeners, you can find us Persuasion by the pint.com. You can find us on all of your podcast platforms, Stitcher Radio, iHeart, Spotify, you name it. You can also find us on Facebook, on our Facebook group, Persuasion by the Pint. Just do a quick search. And uh, to all of our listeners, thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode. Take care and uh, talk to you later. See ya.